Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Well, I am grateful for the opportunity this morning to open God's word with you. And the message today is one that has been ruminating in my heart and my life for some time. It's something that has come up frequently when I'm talking with people about their spiritual condition. When I ask the question, why do you think you'll get to heaven? Time and time again, I have heard the response, because I am a good person. And apart from the truth of God's word, this response kind of makes sense. Our natural intuition says that good people should be rewarded for their good behavior and bad people should be punished. This seems right in our eyes. We appeal to our sense of justice that says that our good, if our good works outweigh our bad, then we deserve to go to heaven. We compare ourselves with those who have maybe committed heinous crimes and, and we say to ourselves, well, we're not as bad as that person. But Proverbs 14:12 warns us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In the world today, Christianity is the only religion that teaches that you cannot earn your way to heaven. In Buddhism, you earn enlightenment through taking steps on the eightfold path, which includes acts of morality, acts of meditation, and acts of wisdom. In Islam, you can attain salvation through uh, observing the five pillars of Islamic practice, belief in Allah, daily prayers, fasting, charity, and a pilgrimage to Mecca. In Judaism, uh, a person's adherence to the Ten Commandments and the law determines their eternal destination. Atonement for sin can be made through repentance and prayer and good works. And all of these religions have something in common. You must work for your salvation. You must do certain things and act in certain ways. In all of this, though, I think one of the biggest reasons why we think it seems right that we can earn our salvation is our natural human desire to be in control of our own destiny. Salvation by works appeals to our pride and our longing for control. We as humans love to assert our independence and not have to rely on anyone. I think this mentality has pervaded our culture today. We live in a do-it-yourself or DIY culture. We have enough knowledge to just about do anything on our own. There's a problem with your washing machine, for example. You can just go on YouTube and maybe someone's had the same problem. You can find a video that shows you how to diagnose the problem and get the right parts and then fix it yourself. Or maybe you want to add a backsplash to your kitchen. You can do the same thing. I'm sure there's a handyman online that can show you what you need and how you need to do it, and you can get that done. I'm even getting on the, in on the game a little bit, um, and I'm building my own guitar. And I never would have been able to do that if it wasn't for all of the wealth of online resources that are available to me. Now, in all fairness, not all DIY projects turn out so well. Here are a few pictures and some examples of this. Yeah, that needs to go on the other side of the next one. 
might want to reevaluate your hardware on those drawers. And lastly, I don't know how they did that. That's just, that's just plain bad. Uh, the, the reality is we can't make it on our own, especially when it comes to our spiritual life and our salvation. Today, I want to take a look at God's word in Ephesians chapter 2, where we'll see three things that try as hard as we might, we cannot do on our own. So let's stand to our feet out of respect of the reading for God's word, and we're going to read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's read it together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We just thank you that it provides guidance and wisdom in this life. And God, we don't have to rely on our own thoughts or opinions about you. We have your word that can tell us who you are and all that you've done for us. And so God, I pray this morning as we dive into your word, God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to the truth that you have for us this morning. And God, that you would identify areas in, in our lives, Lord, where we're a little off the mark, God, and I pray that you would bring us into alignment with your will. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a look at this passage together, and we'll discover three things that we cannot do. The first point in the message can be found in verses one through three, and that is, I cannot live a perfect life. I cannot live a perfect life. At the beginning of Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul, who is writing to the church at Ephesus, he paints a pretty grim picture of our life before Christ. He calls us dead men who lived in the lusts of our flesh and were children of wrath. That may seem a little harsh, but as we'll see, that is a very accurate description of how God sees us before we are saved. Today, when you go into a bookstore, you'll see countless titles about how you can better your life and how you can improve yourself and how you can become a better person. There's a problem with that approach, though, and we find it in this passage. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're dead. A dead man can't better himself. He's dead. In the same way, modern medicine can do amazing things. They can remodel disfigured faces and transplant organs and bypass arteries. But all those surgeries require one thing, that you're alive. Once someone is dead, the only thing the doctor can do for you is put a white sheet over your body and send you to the morgue. 
Warren Wearsby said it well, the unbeliever is not sick, he is dead. He does not need resuscitation, he needs resurrection. In the same way that a physically dead person can't respond to physical stimuli, a spiritually dead person cannot respond to spiritual things. Someone who is lost can do good things for other people, but they can't do anything good spiritually to please God. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is a little gross, but the literal translation of polluted garments are actually menstrual cloths. That's how God sees even our most wonderful, sacrificial, and generous acts if we are apart from Christ. God's standard for us is a perfect life. We're not even close. We're spiritually dead. We haven't done one single good thing that would please God. So what what is the cause of this spiritual death? Verse 1 of our passage says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, if you've been a believer for many years now, this verse may make perfect sense to you. But if you're new to the faith or you're not yet a believer, it is so important that we understand the nature of our sin so that we can understand the need for a Savior. The word sin means to miss the mark, to wander from the right path, to go wrong or to do wrong. It is any thought or word or action that is contrary to God's law. We read in the book of Genesis that God made this world and everything in it. He made the trees and the rocks and all that we see around us. And he also created natural laws to govern this world that he made. He created the law of gravity that, that what goes up is going to come down. And if we break God's natural laws, there are consequences. If we decide that we don't believe in gravity and decide to jump off a skyscraper, there are consequences. Namely, you're going to be a pancake. In the same way, God created spiritual laws to govern our world. When we deviate from these spiritual laws, there are also consequences, and we are committing sin. Tim Keller said it this way, when you, a being created to live for God, live instead for yourself, you violate your design. We were created to live for God and to follow his laws. So you may be thinking, okay, great. So all I have to do is follow God's laws perfectly and commit no sin, and then I can get to heaven. Well, you would be right. If you can go through this life and commit no sin, then yes, you would earn your salvation. The problem is, though, none of us can do it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the book of Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve committed the first sin by disobeying God's instructions. Ever since that time, the human race has been infected with the disease of sin, and we are born into it. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We have a natural tendency towards sin, even from our first breath. Commentator John Phillips says, One of the first behaviors a child displays as soon as it is able to express its developing personality is disobedience. Can I get an amen from all the parents in the room? 
No one ever has to teach a child to be disobedient. Rather, a child has to be taught to obey, and the lesson has to be reinforced often. Disobedience comes naturally. My wife, Lindsay, and I are experiencing this firsthand with our one-year-old, Samuel. We love him to death, but right now, he is discovering what it means to obey and to disobey, and he knows what he's allowed to do and what he's not allowed to do, but he loves to push the boundaries. For Christmas last year, he was given, uh, we have a picture of us, this little child's rocking chair. And instead of sitting in it, as you can see, he loves to stand up on it and just rock back and forth as violently as he can. Well, of course, Lindsay and I have made it clear that he is not allowed to do that. But any chance he gets, he's up on swinging on that rocking chair. What you don't see in this picture is oftentimes when he's in trouble, he'll turn around, give us a nice cheesy grin and wave at us like, I'm so innocent and cute, you can't get me in trouble. That doesn't fly. The point of Lindsay and I teaching him boundaries is not to spoil all his fun. It's to keep him safe. We know what is best for him and only have good intentions with our rules. In the same way, God didn't design these spiritual laws to keep us from having any fun. He wants to spare us the pain and the regret and the suffering that comes along with our sin. In verses 2 and 3 of our passage, the Apostle Paul outlines three forces that encourage us in our disobedience and sin. And each of these influences can wreak havoc on our spiritual life if we let them. The first of these influences is the world. And by the world, the Apostle Paul is referring to the ideologies and systems of thinking in our world. If you flip on the TV or surf on Facebook, it doesn't take long to realize that our world has some messed up ideas. The media today loves to even flaunt things that are clearly contrary to God's law. The world was rebelling against God the day that the Apostle Paul wrote this book to the Ephesians in the first century, and it is still hostile towards God today. I like how the message translation puts verse 2. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. And in order to overcome the world, we need to look to God and his word, which tells us how to live. Well, the next influence is the devil, referred to in our passage as the prince of the power of the air. Jesus said, referring to the devil in John 10.10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The devil would want nothing more for your life than it to end up in complete ruin. He wants to break up your marriage. He wants your kids to rebel. He wants you to be miserable at work. He wants to keep you from any kind of relationship with God. The devil doesn't want you to come to church. He doesn't want you to give. He doesn't want you to serve. He'd like nothing more for you to remain in your sin and be miserable for the rest of your life. But Jesus, as we see in John 10.10, 10, he wants to give you life and life abundantly. Let's look to him and not be caught in the schemes of the enemy. Well, the first two influences, the world and the devil, come from outside of us, but the last comes from within us. We've already talked about our natural propensity to sin, and this manifests itself in what the Apostle Paul refers to as our flesh. Pastor Matthew preached an awesome message just a few weeks ago about the hindrance of the flesh. So I'm not going to go into depth here, but suffice to say, 
our own sinful desires can produce all sorts of problems in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is encouraging us to exercise self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. This cannot be accomplished by our own effort, but by God working in and through us. We must guard ourselves against all three of these influences to keep ourselves from sin. You may be thinking at this point, Scott, I've heard about all of this from when I was a little child in Sunday school. This isn't any news to me. To all of us today, my hope is that we not only acknowledge the fact that we have sinned, but also begin to have a further understanding of the depth of our sinfulness. I think sometimes we can have a casual attitude towards sin and, and just think, oh, it's just a little white lie, or this isn't going to hurt anybody. But I pray that we recognize how our sin grieves the heart of God. If it grieves God, it should grieve us as well. I was listening to a sermon recently by David Platt, and he told this incredible story that deeply challenged me as it relates to my conviction and my brokenness over sin. He began to recount that at the turn of the century in the year 1900, less than 1% of the Korean population were Christians. And that all began to change at a conference that is now known as the Pyongyang Revival of 1907. In January of that year, there was a conference held with a number of Christian leaders, including both Korean and missionaries from other countries in Pyongyang, which is now the capital of North Korea. In anticipation of that meeting, many of them were pleading before God. The country was struggling, their churches were struggling, and they were desperate. During the meeting, the preachers, both missionaries and Korean pastors, while they were preaching, became overwhelmed by the sin that was in their own lives. And they just started confessing their sin publicly in front of everyone that was at the conference. And their confession led to others in the audience to do the same, and people started spontaneously standing up and confessing their sin and crying out for God's mercy. One pastor wrote about that first night. He said, Just as on the day of Pentecost, God came to us in Pyongyang that night with the sound of weeping. As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself on the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. One friend tried to make a confession, and he broke down in the midst of it, and he cried to me across the room, and he said, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? Then threw himself to the floor and wept and wept and almost screamed in agony. We would all weep. We could not help it. So the meeting went on like this until 2 o'clock in the morning with confession and weeping and praying. And what happened that night continued the next day, and the next, and the marks of Korean revival were born. And in the days to come, that movement of God's spirit swept into village after village and church after church, and people started coming to Christ left and right, and churches were being planted. Christians were praying early every morning. They would gather for all-night prayer gatherings. Fast forward one century later. 
through all sorts of turmoil and persecution, as we know, especially in North Korea. In South Korea alone, by the year 2000, there were over 10 million followers of Jesus. 10 million. South Korea is now second only to the United States in the number of missionaries sent around the world. Oh, that we would have the same kind of brokenness over our sin that took place in Pyongyang. Oh, that we would begin to see our sin as God sees it. John Phillips said, we have no real understanding of how outraged God is by our sin, what an insult sin is to his person, or how sin fires the flames of his wrath. That brings us to our second point in the message, that we cannot avoid the consequence of sin. In Ephesians 2, the second part of verse 3 tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. The NIV translation says that we are deserving of wrath. God's wrath isn't one of those subjects that we love to talk about a whole lot. It doesn't make us feel too good about ourselves. And, uh, you know, to be honest, God's wrath is scary. In the church, we talk about God's mercy and his grace all the time, and so we should but we don't often broach the subject of his wrath. To be honest, some churches choose to ignore that aspect of God altogether. One of the songs we sang this morning, In Christ Alone, some churches actually edit that to exclude the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied. Instead, they sing, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was satisfied. While it's no one's favorite subject, we need to recognize that throughout the scriptures, we see that God does indeed exercise his wrath. In Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, we read, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We also see that God's wrath burns against those who reject his ways and the truth of his word. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath isn't exclusive either. It doesn't matter who you are. All of our sin provokes his wrath. In Exodus 32, we see that while Moses is up on the mountain hearing from the Lord, the nation of Israel has made an idol in the form of a golden calf and is worshiping it. You can imagine this probably didn't make God feel too happy. In Exodus 32.10, we read, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Here we see God's wrath burn against his own chosen people, the Israelites, because of their sin. It says in verse 3 of Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here Paul is implying that both Jews and Gentiles, all of us, are subject to God's wrath. No one is exempt. Every single person here in this room today either once was a child of God's wrath or currently is a child of God's wrath. We've established already that we all have sinned and cannot live a perfect life, and the consequence for that sin is God's wrath upon us. The Bible tells us that God's wrath is poured out in a place for that sin, and it's a place of torture called hell. 
where those who don't believe in Jesus will spend all of eternity separated from God. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us about the final judgment. In verse 31, we read, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skipping down to verse 41, we read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. One day we will all stand before Christ in judgment, and you will either be on his right or on his left. We need to be ready for that day. While the Bible describes hell as a very real place, there are many who can't reconcile the fact that a loving God would send anyone there. The Bible says that how could a loving God send someone to hell? That's a major question and a barrier for many to come to Christ. Our our culture defines a loving God as a completely non-confrontational being who tolerates anything we want to do. That's not a biblical definition of a God of love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. But God is not just love. He is so much more than that. God is faithful. God is good. God is kind. And God is also just. He cannot in himself let sin go unpunished. That would be against his nature. But how can God be both a God of justice and a God of love? Think for a minute of the last time you got a speeding ticket. You were clearly going over the speed limit, and the police officer caught you red-handed. And as the officer approaches your window and you roll it down, what do we often try to do? We try to explain ourselves and rationalize our actions and make excuses and sometimes just plead with him to have mercy on us. I remember um, several years ago when I was in college at Liberty University, I used to drive up here every weekend to lead worship, and then I uh, went to school during the week. And one of those times, driving up on a Friday, I was coming up uh, Route 29, and uh, it's a state highway, and so the speed limit's uh, 55 miles an hour. And they also decided for some reason to put school zones on this highway. And so I, I swear to this day, I did not see or the fact that they were not flashing at all, but the school zone sign, I don't think it was flashing. But anyways, I got pulled over for going through a school zone at a considerable speed. Um, and anyways, as, as the officer approached my vehicle, I decided to do something uh, probably a little foolish, and I decided to share the gospel with him. And I'm telling you, my motives were pure, and I wasn't trying to get out of the ticket, but I don't think the officer appreciated it at all, because I think he thought I was. But anyways, back to our hypothetical scenario here. So the officer approaches the window. You're trying to make excuses and all that kind of stuff, right? So the officer then has two choices. He can either be just and give you the ticket like you deserve, or he could show mercy and let you off the hook. If he lets you off the hook, he may be demonstrating mercy or love, 
but he is not being just in upholding the law that he is sworn to honor and protect. So he could be either loving and let you off or just and give you the ticket. He can't be both. But what if the officer does something unexpected? What if he writes you the ticket and gives it to you, but then he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out his checkbook and he writes you a check for the amount of the ticket and gives it to you? He's then both upholding the law and demonstrating love towards you. That's exactly what God has done for us. God has to uphold his law because he is just, but he took the punishment for our sin upon himself. The love of God and the justice of God collided once for all on the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no greater picture of love and no greater picture of justice than what Jesus has done for us. God's justice makes his love shine all the more brightly. And here we reach a turning point in Ephesians chapter 2. We've looked at in verses 1 and 3 about how we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And in verse 4, we get some good news. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? Yeah. The fact is, those that have been rescued from God's wrath draw even more delight from the fact that they are saved. If there was no consequence for our sin, then we would have no reason to celebrate our salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to experience the consequences of our sin. He takes the punishment so that we can be with him in heaven. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We cannot avoid the consequence of sin, but Jesus has taken that consequence upon himself so that we can be saved. That leads us to the final point in the message today, that I cannot earn my salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I like the way that the message translation puts it. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did this all on his own with no help from us. We can clearly see from these verses, it's as plain as day that salvation is a gift. It's not a reward. Warren Wearsby said it this way, salvation cannot be of works because the work of salvation has already been completed on the cross. This is the work that God does for us, and it is a finished work. We can add nothing to it. We dare take nothing from it. The fact is, my works do not save me. And we see this not just in Ephesians 2, but in many other places in Scripture, Titus 3, 5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We also see this in Romans 3, 28, which says, for we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from works of the law. There are even passages in the Old Testament that point to the fact that our works can't save us. And right now I'm going through a devotional in the Psalms. I'm going all the way through the Psalms. And I came across Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9 the other day, and it blew me away. I had no idea that this was in the Psalms. It says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. In other words, we cannot save ourselves. There is no price that we can pay or thing that we can do to save our souls. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And God loves to demonstrate his grace. The word grace in just the 10 verses that we're looking at this morning is mentioned three times in this passage, and it's mentioned another 115 times throughout the New Testament. Grace is giving us something that we do not deserve, and it is God's work, not ours. And in this verse, Ephesians 2, chapter eight, we, or verse 8, we can see a salvation equation, if you will, and we'll have this up on the screen here. We have grace plus faith equals salvation. Grace, as we can see, is God's work, and faith is our response. We see in both things a change in action and also a change in belief. In accepting God's grace, we are signifying that change in action. We accept Christ's forgiveness for our sins, and we repent and turn from our sinful way of doing things. In looking to Jesus in faith, we signify a change in belief. We are saying that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and acknowledge him as Lord of our life. And when we accept God's gift of grace and place our faith in him, we can be saved. But we must always remember that faith is not the end of our response. It is only the beginning. Salvation is not a, just a get-out-of-hell-free card. We are not just saved from something. We are saved to something. Warren Wearsby said it this way, God's purpose in our redemption is not simply to rescue us from hell, as great a work as that is. His ultimate purpose in our salvation is that for all eternity, the church might glorify God's grace. Well, the final verse in our passage today, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the purposes of God giving us new life in him is for good works. My works don't save me, but instead my works are the evidence that I am saved. The book of James has much to say about faith and works and how they go together. In James 2, 14 through 17, we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it is, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying here is that our works are the evidence of our faith. And if our faith is not producing good works, then maybe we don't have a genuine faith at all. James goes on in verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And James here uses an excellent illustration of how faith and works go together. Many of us know the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. Uh, Basically, God instructs Abraham to take his one and only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him or kill him. Now, as a father, I can't even imagine the turmoil that Abraham must have been going through in hearing this instruction from the Lord, and yet Abraham obeyed, even to the point of raising the knife over his son's body. But we know the rest of the story. An angel stopped Abraham, then the Lord provided a ram for the sacrifice. And in all of it, Abraham was being tested to see who he loved most, his son or the Lord. And here's how we see faith and works at play in this story in the life of Abraham. Hebrews 11.9 kind of gives us a little bit of insight into it. it. It tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. And so in this instance, he believed that either God would spare his son or that God would raise his son back from the dead. That's the faith part. That is what he believed. But Abraham didn't stop there. He obeyed. He took his son, he tied him up, and was completely prepared to follow through with what God had told him. If Abraham had just simply believed that God could raise his son from the dead and not done anything about it, he wouldn't have obeyed the Lord. It was only when faith and works were combined that God was pleased with him. We must be careful, though, because it is easy to fall into one of two ditches when it comes to our works. On the one side, we can fall into legalism, And on the other side, we can fall into lethargy. First, we must guard ourselves against legalism. Legalism involves keeping man-made religious rules to obtain the righteousness of God. It is dangerous because it can lead into the trap of once again believing that we are saved by our works. Legalism was prevalent in Jesus' day in the life of the Pharisees. They followed all of these rules that were outside of God's law in order to try to find favor. And they had this outward form of religion, but they were doing it for all of the wrong reasons. They sought to find honor in the sight of men, but not honor in the sight of God. As a result, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23 that are beautiful on the outside, but are full of uncleanness and dead, dead people's bones on the inside. In our struggle against legalism, we must remember Ephesians 2 verse 9, which tells us we are saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we're honest, though, sometimes we do pride ourselves in, in our righteousness and in our faith. We may advertise to others how much we read our Bibles or how much we serve or how long we've been a believer. And this spiritual pride can lead us straight into legalism. I was once told by a wise believer that the kingdom of God is level ground. What he meant for us is that is, it doesn't matter if you're the lead pastor of the largest church in America or if you're a recovering drug addict who just put their faith in Christ. God sees all of us as the same. There is no status in the kingdom of God. We need to get off our high horses and humbly serve the Lord. Well, we must not only guard ourselves against legalism, but we must also guard ourselves against lethargy. 
This attitude says, well, I'm saved by faith, and so I don't need to do any good works. I'm just going to sit here and wait until God brings me home to heaven. Well, statistics tell us that there are many who adopt this attitude. In a 2014 survey, researchers found that 63% of Americans believe in God, but only half of those people practice their faith by reading their Bibles once a week and regularly attending a worship service. Right at 50% of people who believe in God don't do anything about it. They have fallen into the ditch of lethargy. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that we were created for good works that God has prepared for us to do. So don't just sit in a chair on a Sunday morning and think that your duty to the Lord is done. Get out there and do something for him. Stop, the per- stop and help the person with a flat tire. Listen and pray with the coworker who is hurting. Invest in the lives of your neighbors. Invite them over to dinner. Go on a mission trip. Serve on a ministry team here at Crosslink. Just be the hands and feet of Christ. I heard in the news just this past week that a local government in China is offering rewards for those who report Christians who are gathering to worship illegally. These cash rewards are intended to bribe community members into reporting their neighbors to the authorities. It's a heartbreaking reality, but it begs the question, if that happened here in Virginia, would your neighbors report you? Is it evident in your life that you're a Christian or would your neighbors or or coworkers or friends have no idea at all? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 16, to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to demonstrate our faith through our works. We are also to always remember that those works cannot save us. Well, this morning we've seen three things that we cannot do. We cannot live a perfect life. We cannot avoid the consequence of sin. And we cannot earn our salvation. I'd like to conclude the message today with a story that can be found in David Platt's book, Radical. In the book, Platt tells a story of sitting outside a Buddhist temple in Indonesia where he was engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in that community. And they were discussing how all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. They argued that they may have different views about small things, but when it comes down to essential issues, each religion is the same. Platt listened for a while, and then they asked him what he thought. He said... It sounds as though you both picture God at the top of a mountain. It seems, it seems as if you believe that we are all at the base of the mountain, and I may take one route up the mountain, and you may take another. But in the end, we will all end up in the same place. The Muslim and Buddhist leaders smiled and happily replied, that's exactly it, you understand. Then Platt leaned in and said, now let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain doesn't wait for people to make their way up to him, but instead comes down the mountain to us? They thought for a moment, then responded, that would be great. Platt replied, let me introduce you to Jesus. You see, when other religions say, do, Jesus says, done. 
We cannot live a perfect life, but Jesus did. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What is impossible for man is impossible with God. We cannot avoid the consequence of sin, but Jesus took that consequence of sin for us. That line in, in Christ alone is true, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus took our place, he took our sin, and he paid the price for it so that we can be saved. We cannot earn our salvation through our good works, but Jesus did. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the perfect death, and he rose again in victory, securing salvation for all who call upon his name. We can strive and strive and try to climb that mountain up to God, but the reality is that God is not at the top of the mountain. God came down the mountain and is here with us. He's not asking us to try to climb up to him but to simply accept the free gift of salvation that he offers. Let's pray. Father, we do, Lord, just take a moment and reflect on all that you have done for us. God, the things that we could not do, you have accomplished. God, you didn't just save us from our sin and let us be you're going to raise us up with you in the heavenly places. We can spend all of eternity with you. God, I thank you for that reality. I thank you that, God, that we don't have to hope that we're going to get to heaven, that we don't have to hope that our good works outweigh the bad, but that we can simply place our faith in you and accept that free gift of your grace that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we are saved and will spend all of eternity with you. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for who you are. We respond to you now. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.